Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, Abby. Yeah, I hear you You recently moved to Saskatchewan, and I'm wondering, as a guy who grew up in the Lower Mainland out here in BC, how worried are you about that first Saskatchewan winter? I'm a bit worried, you know. Uh, being from BC, I'm not used to anything below, like, minus 10. To go down to the negative 40s, the negative 50s with windshell, that, that's a bit concerning. So I'm doing my best to get prepared. I have everything except the boots, and I, I hear that's one of the most important things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I trust you'll get those. But I'm also wondering, have you been doing anything social to keep your spirits up when it is darker and it is colder? Yeah, you know, I, I recently started playing curling here in Saskatchewan, uh, and I, I've been playing hockey. I've been playing hockey since I was young. So, Well, that voice you're hearing is Abby Singh Satchel. And I'm not surprised he's looking for connection, especially as winter looms. He's our newest columnist, and he'll be bringing us stories about climate change and mental health. Abby's been working on solutions since he was a teenager. Now he's at the University of Regina working on a Master's of Educational Psychology. I'm Laura Lynch, by the way, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today we're talking about why community, whether it's a curling club or a cross-country Zoom call, can be key to coping with your climate feelings. So, welcome, Abby. Thank you so much. We're going to dive into the community work you do, but but I want to start more on the personal level. What kinds of emotions does climate change bring up for you? Climate change is such a big, ominous threat that sometimes it feels paralyzing. But I think for me, I, I'm sort of at a point now where I can go through cycles of sometimes anxiety and despair, but also cycles of hope and feeling opportunity. And, and so I think currently in this very moment today, I'm feeling a lot of opportunity. Like, I, I feel like I know my place and that the work I'm doing feels meaningful. And that's that's a very empowering feeling. Okay, so you're studying to be a clinical psychologist. What's the range of climate feelings that you hear about from other people? Yeah, there, there's such a huge range. I think most typically we hear about eco-anxiety. It's a term that's been used so much more over the past few years. But there's also a whole range of emotions from feelings of loss and grief. There's also emotions like anger feelings of betrayal, frustration at the government, at fossil fuel companies, at those that have knowingly caused this crisis. And then there's, I think, a whole other range of emotions from sort of helplessness to apathy to denial, polarization that we see as a result of the climate crisis. And I I think the final area of emotions that I often see is, again, that transition from the anxiety and the isolation to these broader notions of connectedness, of community, and feeling like you know your role in this broader fight. Well, that's that's excellent because that's the next thing I want to ask you about, because it's not just about identifying people's personal feelings about climate change. Your work is about sharing experiences between people and communities. And all of it started with a trip you took to Nunavut in 2016. Tell me how that trip affected you. Yeah, when I was 14 years old, I had this incredible opportunity to travel to the Arctic. And coming back from this experience, I remember feeling all sorts of emotions. Like I was overwhelmed by learning about the climate crisis. But I was also inspired by learning from 50 Inuit youth on the Arctic expedition. And 
when they had told me about how climate change had been impacting their communities for the past decades, I realized that this is not something new. This is something that Indigenous communities across the world, and in Canada in particular, have been dealing with. And so I, I think coming back, I, I really wanted to share this sort of experience with my peers. Being in high school at the time, when I talked about climate change, the language of urgency and the language of justice wasn't where it's at today. And so I started a connection between students at my high school in Delta, BC, with a school in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. As high school students, we talked about local impacts of climate change. We also talked about our emotions and mental health. But more than anything else, we became friends with one another. We talked about what we did for fun, what our families were like, what we um, did out on the land. And, And putting all that together, what we really saw was we were building empathy for one another. And so since then, we've sort of expanded that approach to, to schools uh, across the country and around the world. And that's, that's what Break the Divide is. But, but tell me why it's important to share those experiences and those feelings. Yeah, I think so often, especially young people, we can feel alone in our emotions and, and in connecting with other people, maybe from a different community. It can lead to the sense of power, like you're not alone, but that you also have other people that have different ways of looking at things. And I think gaining inspiration from the ways that different communities take action can be so, so huge in terms of building momentum in yourself, in your own community to create change. I'm curious to know, you, you, you talked about the trip up north. I'm wondering if you can tell me the most surprising thing that you've learned. One of the conversations that really surprised a lot of us down in the south was when, when students in the north told us that because permafrost is melting unevenly, pipes beneath the surface are actually breaking. And so what climate change is to us, especially back in 2016, as like more of an abstract scientific concept, for the youth in the Arctic, it was an immediate thing that was impacting their entire community and their water supply. Another story that I think of is when youth in the Arctic talked to us about how because of melting sea ice and because it's so much more unpredictable now, elders can no longer go hunting for seal as consistently. And sometimes in March and April, when sea ice was historically very predictable and very sturdy at that time of year, it no longer is. And so sometimes elders are going out and um, becoming injured or not not coming back at all. And, And so I think those very sort of clear stories connecting us with how climate change is impacting real communities was very surprising for us. More than anything else, I think it was a testament to how we aren't taught to connect with one another and we don't have that opportunity. The fact that like climate change has been impacting communities across this country for the past decades, yet in my high school education, I wasn't learning about it. That was shocking to me. And so I think it really goes to show how even though we are all now impacted by the climate crisis in so many different ways, we still often remain disconnected from the ways that it impacts our real lives and the ways that it impacts our emotions. Well, you, you're working on a new project with Break the Divide that is connecting pairs of high schools across Canada. Tell me how that kind of sharing leads to action. So the Climate Emotions program that we're launching in January is going to connect seven pairs of high schools across the country with one another to facilitate conversation on climate change, mental health, community and identity. And so, you know, you might have a school in Saskatoon talking to a school in Halifax or a school in Iqaluit talking to a school in Vancouver uh, or a school in Grand Prairie talking to um, a school in uh, Winnipeg. I, I mean, I could go on forever. But, <laughs> and we're actually recruiting schools for this program right now for high schools. Essentially, the theory of change really is that when the students in one location are able to recognize that students in another part of the country are also experiencing very real impacts of climate change, it, it builds a sense of community. 
And in learning about the ways that other communities have already been taking climate action, you're inspired to create change. So tell me how this happens. Is it, it's, it's not like they're in a room and they can gather around the fire. <laughs> Are they gra- gathering around computer terminals in their respective places? Yeah, exactly. They're um, (laughs) chatting through video calls, um, but we also have a lot of sort of programming uh, within the classrooms themselves so that students actually go through a four-month process of understanding their own ecological identity, understanding their community knowledge around a certain issue. I mean, every community, whether it's the South Asian community of Surrey, BC, or queer youth in Toronto, or like Inuit youth in, in the Arctic, right? Every community has a distinct way of thinking and looking at the world. You, you, and you're also organizing these climate cafes around the country in the new year. And for those, the goal is specifically not to talk about taking climate action. <laughs> Can you explain that? Climate cafes are exactly that. They're a space to talk about climate change without having to talk about solutions. So often, many people feel like if they want to talk about climate change with other people, the, the immediate question is like, okay, well, what can I do? What can my company do? What is the government doing? But taking a step back and first of all, getting in touch with what's at stake here? Why are you concerned? Are you scared about losing your land? Are you scared about your farming being impacted? Are you scared for your children? And beginning by answering those questions and getting in touch with your actual emotions about climate change can be such a transformative process because it then allows us to see the pathway for change. Now, we heard from a listener recently with a question, and his name is Howard Kirkham. He's working with a group to help the small BC community of 100 Mile House better prepare for the mental Mm. health impacts of climate disasters like wildfires. And I just, just want you to listen to what he had to say. What can a community build in in preparation for extreme events and for climate mental health distress? What types of Community development strategies have proven to build social cohesion and then in turn enhance a climate mental health response that's more resilient than otherwise. So I figured you're the right person to (laughs) answer the question. So what are your thoughts on that, Abe? I think as we try to build climate resilience that's rooted in justice, that actually involves building stronger communities. I, I think so often when we think about community, we think that like it's the people who are similar to us. But I think so often there are people within the places that we live that we just don't know. And I think organizing things like climate cafes, things like events and town halls where people can come together and just get to know one another is actually such an important precursor to being prepared for natural disasters. Because knowing who the people around you are and feeling comfortable with them especially when they're different from you, I think is so huge to being able to be prepared. Uh, I'd also add that specific mental health strategies and coping strategies are huge. So in, in light of the climate changes that we're seeing across the country, many psychologists are recommending like improving your connection with nature. And, and what that means is not just going outside more, but actually, again, sort of deeply reflecting on what your relationship with nature is, what your relationship with the climate is. And I think having spaces within communities to facilitate these group conversations can also be incredibly powerful. All right, there you go, Howard Kirkham, some advice from Abe. <laughs> so we're, we're now just days away from the International Climate Conference COP28 in the United Arab Emirates, and you're going. How will you be working to build connections while you're there? Yeah, I, I'm incredibly excited to be headed to Dubai for COP28. Uh, I'm going uh, with this Environment and Climate Change Canada Youth Council, and one of the things that we're doing is actually hosting a panel at the Canadian Pavilion in Dubai focused on understanding this intergenerational sort of shift in the ways that we think about climate change and this growing level of cynicism, uh, denialism and despair 
And, and this panel is really to get to the root causes of why we're feeling this way and what some of these systemic solutions can look like. I really think it'll be a great opportunity to connect with young people, different stakeholders around the world to talk about what sort of collaborative climate action that centers our emotions and centers justice can look like. Well, I hope things go well for you, Abbe Singh Sachal. Thank you very much. And until we speak again. Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you heard uh, Abbe and I talking about his upcoming trip to Dubai, and we are going to be including coverage of the COP28 summit in Dubai in the coming weeks. We'll have a lot to talk about. There is so much happening this year in what some say is the most important COP gathering ever. Canadians care about what's happening in the world, and in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. sounds like the holidays, right? It is holiday season and shopping that goes with it is upon us. If you ask shoppers, it sounds like there could be a huge surge in online orders over the next few weeks. Black Friday that's coming up. It's like, oh my god, the deals are way better than in-store. My mom has an addiction to shopping online. I think she just thinks it's like easier because she broke her foot once and she started online shopping. So now she just like shops on like Shein and like Amazon now. You can get anything you want instead of having to find it in a store. So do you buy a lot of things online? Yes. Yeah, what do you buy? Clothing, decorations, um, and lots of hair stuff. <laughs> Some pretty enthusiastic shoppers talking to our producer, Vivian Luck. And yes, buying online could save some time and some money, especially at this time of year. But it does come at a cost to the environment. Yeah, I, there's so much I, plastic waste when like you get like one little thing and then there's like a big box that it comes with. And so, all yeah. the gas emissions from all the cars and the vans that are traveling, which cause global warming and climate change. Even if it is bad what's happening, there's like it's sort of hard for me to like go out just to buy stuff that I want, but just being in my own home getting to shop is always so, like really fun for me. So, if there was a way to shop online, that is more sustainable and doesn't completely wreck the environment, would you want to find out how? Yes. 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 Totally. Yes. Yes. Okay, well, here you are. Vivian went to find out some answers. Okay, first, I have a confession to make. Right when I was starting to work on this piece, I bought something online. And I had it delivered pretty quickly. It was a book. It's called Oh Crap! Potty Training. Everything modern parents need to know to do it once and do it right. A fellow parent swore by that book. And in my desperation, I clicked proceed to checkout rather than wait weeks for a copy from the library or see if I can get a second hand from a parent group 
or head to my local bookstore to see if it's on the shelves. Did the book help? Not really. Did I need it right away? Also no. And was the way I made my online purchase just the worst for the environment? It really depends on how it's carried out. My name is Maddie Ewing, and I'm a consultant with Densky Energy and Climate Advisors. Maddie Ewing works on low-carbon transportation solutions, like fleet electrification, for example. Now, according to Canada's official National Greenhouse Gas Inventory, transportation makes up about 22% of our country's GHGs. A third of that is related to freight delivery. So with the way online shopping has surged since the COVID-19 pandemic, and with holiday shopping ramping up once again, well, you can imagine what all that's going to mean for carbon emissions. The good news is, changing how you shop online can reduce the impact and can even be greener than going to a store. So as opposed to seeing, you know, six people or maybe even 60 people drive to their mall, we're instead seeing a single vehicle sort of make smaller trips to drop off those deliveries. You know, that benefit of that consolidation and one vehicle performing that route over multiple individuals performing it becomes greater. The key word, if you caught it just now, is consolidation, meaning you can cut down on emissions if delivery vehicles are packed with as many orders as possible. That way, drivers can make as many drop-offs as they can over the shortest distance. Plus, there would be fewer trucks and vans on the road. As a shopper, Maddie says you can help make that happen by grouping your orders. Are there other items that you're going to need from that retailer in the near future? And can you actually hold off on hitting checkout until you've consolidated a bigger order from that particular retailer? When all your items are in one parcel, there is less packaging waste. And ideally, everything can be delivered in a single trip. The other thing you can do is be patient. You know, who can blame people for wanting to get things done quickly and especially at last minute and trying to get deals, but the speed at which we expect things or would like things to show up, it increases the greenhouse gases that might otherwise have been less. That's Jackie Dawson, an associate professor at the University of Ottawa and the Canada Research Chair in Environment, Society and Policy. She says that when packages have to be delivered within a day or two, things might have to be flown to a warehouse before they're loaded onto a delivery truck. 90% of everything moves around the world by ship, but when things have to get moved around the world by plane quickly, the greenhouse gas emissions are thousands of times higher. But even if air travel isn't needed, fast shipping forces delivery trucks to meet deadlines by delivering to fewer customers at a time. Then they have to make multiple trips and drive longer distances all of which generates more emissions. So if you want to be more eco-friendly, choose slower delivery options. And before you hit checkout, Jackie suggests you hit the pause button first. The advice I try to give myself is, you know, give myself a lead up so that I'm not buying things at the last minute or maybe also not buying things that I don't need. And, you know, a sale is, is only a sale if you actually need the item that you're purchasing. Okay, so you've given yourself some time to figure out what you actually need, and you've waited at least until the end of the week for your shopping cart to fill up, and you're choosing a slower delivery option. Here's one more piece of advice from Jackie and Maddie 
that is less about how you shop but where you shop. Pick an online retailer whose sustainability goals align with yours. Maybe it's the way their products are made or packaged, or it's their return policies. Jackie likes Etsy, for example, and with Maddie, she likes any retailer whose delivery fleets are making the shift to zero emission vehicles. Personally, I'm in Toronto, and I've been super, super excited to see some of the FedEx Bright Drop delivery vans、um, travel around the streets of my neighborhood here. And similarly, I've seen some of the cargo bikes、uh, dropping off deliveries in different neighborhoods too. And so, if you can go with companies that are starting to use those、uh, lower emitting modes of travel, that would be a more impactful way of moving forward. And finally, for all we've said about how to shop online more sustainably. Is there a time when heading to a brick-and-mortar store is the greener option? The answer is nuanced, but essentially, yes. Once again, Maddie says it largely depends on how you make that trip to the store. Think about, you know, could I actually buy this item in person by walking to a store nearby me, or biking, or potentially like on my transit ride home from work? And if that's the case, maybe you opt to stop by in person to buy that particular item instead of ordering it online. For what on earth? I'm Vivian Luck. Thanks, Vivian. If you have a climate dilemma in your life, let us know, and we will try to answer it for you. Our email is earth at cbc.ca. So recently, we heard from Brendan Haley with Efficiency Canada, and we chatted partly about his climate-friendly Halloween costume. He dressed up as a heat pump. And Brendan shared his thoughts about how and when those systems can cut home heating costs and actually help the climate. And Rachel Sanders is here with your responses to that. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yeah, we called that episode "Heat Pumps Are So Hot Right Now." And judging by all the email we got, we were right. This subject really gets people fired up. Did you say? I, oh, come I on! Did. You didn't、I、say that. Did. Okay,、yeah. you went there. I tell you that one of the most <laughs> exciting things we learned is that Brendan isn't the only one who dresses up as a heat pump. Sarah Lazarevich with the U.S. nonprofit Rewiring America got in touch to say. She created a character called Mr. Heat Pump. Have a listen to a little bit of this YouTube video. I'm here today because no one knows what a heat pump is. I got to talk to the Senate, the White House, and people on the street to get the word out. Because I can run on electricity, get the fossil fuels out of your house, and cut your bills all at the same time. Do you know what I am? A big box. This is such a fun video. You can see this guy with with the box with the fan on the front of it, and he's he's in on the lawns in front of the Congress building talking to people. He goes and chats with senators. He rides the subway. <laughs> He even visits the White House. You can see that whole video if you search "Mr. Heat Pump Goes to Washington" on YouTube. And I love his costume. He has a fan on the front that even spins. And Sarah actually says she dresses up as a heat pump as well. She thinks it's one of the most effective ways to get the word out about them. So, are you gonna dress up any? I think I better. Yeah, <laughs> I think I need to start constructing my costume. Okay, who knew? Yeah, who knew there were so many heat pump costumes out there? Not. Me, but you know, Laura, we got emails about heat pumps from people here in Canada as well. Denis Palmer wrote to us from Randborough, Quebec, to say he installed a heat pump just over a year ago. Previously, he was using wood heat with backup electrical panels in his house, and he said, "I expected that the heat pump would serve us well in autumn and spring, but that we would fall back on wood from December through March. 
Not so, to our surprise. We had one morning at minus 29 degrees last winter when the heat pump wouldn't work. We lit the stove for a couple of hours, then the heat pump kicked in, and we had smooth heating the rest of the winter. Scott Moe ought to give it a try. Scott Moe, yes. Denis is talking about Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who has said that heat pumps don't work well in his province when it gets below minus 25 degrees. Exactly. And Brendan Haley said electric or natural gas backup systems can be a solution to that problem. But listener Denis Palmer said, I still have all of last year's wood for backup and our electricity bill actually dropped. We haven't used the other heaters. Needless to say, we are happy with our decision. Just sorry we took so long to make it. Well, that is good news, although it is worth noting that heat pumps are not going to be the most affordable option for everyone right now. It depends on a few things, how cold it gets, how much oil and gas costs where you live. And there's some uncertainty bubbling up right now about what kind of rebates are going to be available to people over time. So as Brendan Haley said, the first step is insulation and Mm. sealing leaks in your house where heat can escape. So here is another email. Blaze Salmon from Shawnigan Lake, B.C. said... Interesting segment, but quite incomplete on the climate impacts of heat pumps. There was no mention of refrigerants at all. As you probably know, refrigerants are responsible for 10 to 12 percent of global warming. Yes, refrigerants are an issue. Thanks for flagging that, Blaze. Efficiency Canada says most heat pumps in Canada currently do contain higher global warming potential refrigerants, but it says the emissions savings from heat pumps are still positive. And the International Energy Agency agrees. It says heat pumps can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by between 20 and 80 percent compared with a gas boiler. Efficiency Canada also says we're starting to see less harmful refrigerants gain traction. And Canada has committed to using those lower impact refrigerants. But they say also that we're falling behind the U.S. and Europe on this issue. So there's still a lot of work to do. Lots of thoughtful responses from our great listeners, as usual. And thanks, Rachel, for bringing them to us. Thank you, Laura. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. You can always write to us about anything you hear on the show, earth at cbc.ca. You heard me mention changes to the grants and rebates for heat pumps. It seems Ottawa is running out of money for its Greener Home Grants program. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson says it's been so successful, there's uncertainty about just how long it will continue. And some stakeholders say they've been told it will end in March of 2024. They're not happy about it. For those considering retrofits, it means some uncertainty. But if you get your application in by March, you will still be eligible though there are many complaints about lengthy waits. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We drop two new podcasts every week. And while you're there, leave us a review. Even better, tell a friend about us. That is all for now. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Danielle Piper, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.